And so I think just encouraging students, encouraging people, get as much hands-on day-to-day experience as you can, because that's what really allows you to understand how that animal is similar to humans and how it is very often vastly different. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global poultry industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Start your journey with us at Eastman.com. At JBI, we apply biosecurity innovation and expertise to keep your operation safe. Natural Biologics is looking deeper to find the natural solutions to your poultry health challenges. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global poultry industry. A worldwide leader in animal nutrition, Adiseo's portfolio of products includes methionine, the full range of vitamins, enzymes, organic selenium, probiotics, mycotoxin management strategies, and palatability products. With such a diverse offering, Adiseo supports its customers with a broad range of expertise, tools, and services to help them maintain a competitive advantage. Adiseo, fueling predictable profits. To learn more, visit Adiseo at www.adiseo.com. Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Malash, your host for this episode of the Poultry Podcast Show. Joining us today is our guest, Dr. Jason Emmert, a professor in the Department of Animal Science at the University of Illinois. Dr. Emmert completed his bachelor's degree in agricultural science at the University of Illinois, then remained there to complete his master's and PhD in animal nutrition under the advisement of Dr. Dave Baker. For over a decade, Dr. Emmert was a faculty member in the Department of Poultry Science at the University of Arkansas, where he conducted research focused on amino acid requirements for phase feeding. He then returned to the University of Illinois as an assistant dean in the Office of Academic Programs in the College of Agriculture, Consumer, and Environmental Sciences, where he oversaw college recruitment efforts and the administration of college scholarship programs. In 2017, he joined the Department of Animal Science, where he now teaches several courses, including an introduction to college course for all new agriculture students, a writing class focused on world animal resources, and courses on animal handling and behavior. Welcome to the show, Dr. Emmert. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. Oh, well, we're very excited to have you. Before we get started, can you tell us a little bit of your background and maybe tell us the story of how you came to be a professor at the University of Illinois? You bet. So I... um... It was like a lot of students in in high school who were interested in animals. I thought, oh, I guess the way to have a job with animals is to go somewhere and study animal sciences and become a veterinarian. So I entered, uh, went to school at University of Illinois with the intention of becoming a veterinarian. But sophomore year, started working in a lab with Dr. Baker and uh, found out I was really interested in poultry and nutrition. And so I just continued on that path. I had uh, spent a considerable amount of time on my grandfather's farm in Western Illinois. Uh, but by that time, he was, he was slowing down quite a bit. And he, he had a few cattle left, but not the, 
not the well-rounded farm of the 40s and 50s with pigs and chickens and sheep and everything else. Uh, but it was enough. It was enough to get me interested in, in animals and agriculture. So yeah, I kind of followed that path. And I tell students all the time, you just don't know what conversation you're going to have that's going to really set the course for your for your life. But uh, after finishing a PhD here at University of Illinois, I had the chance to be a part of the poultry science department at Arkansas, which was phenomenal. And for me, since I had stayed at Illinois for all my degrees, it was really valuable to experience a different place uh, and find out there's lots of different ways to do things and to do them well, uh, and that there are good people everywhere. And that was just a really important experience for me. But yeah, I then had the chance to, to come home in 2008. Uh, and yeah, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. I've had kind of three phases of my career, each one a little bit different and each one very enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Sounds like it. It's a it's a fairly frequent story that we hear that folks, you know, they end up doing their undergraduate with the intentions of going to vet school, myself among uh, uh-huh. folks with those stories. And then you just, you know, you find something else that you fall in love with, like research uh, or like teaching. Um, do you remember any specific moments where you kind of realized that, you know, teaching was something you really wanted to do? It, it was really a stepwise process. So even in uh... In grade school, I can remember at times when the teacher would say, hey, if you have your work finished, then maybe try to help someone who's not finished yet and work together. Because they didn't, you know, we I went to a small school. We were all in the same classroom. There wasn't, you know, full different levels of subjects. We just were all thrown in together. Uh, but then in college, senior year, uh, the chemistry department was short on graduate students. And so they put out a call for seniors to be able to TA uh, chemistry. And I thought, well, this would be a good chance to get part of my school paid for and you know, look good on my resume. But I found out I really, really enjoyed being in the classroom. Um, and although chemistry wasn't the discipline I wanted to teach long term, it still gave me a great experience. I was about to say, that's a pretty challenging area to step into if it's not the field that you're necessarily studying. It was, but I, I was really fortunate. And you don't often hear this. Um, we had a couple of chemistry instructors that were just phenomenal, very student oriented, um, and they really brought all of the TAs along very well, explained exactly what they needed us to do, gave us some freedom to do that in the way we thought best. Uh, but I, I had some really good mentors, and that was important. That's always very important. And you're right. It's not a story that we hear a lot, I think, often because it just goes untold, not necessarily because there's a lack of good mentors. But That's right. Yeah. That's right. Did any of those experiences change how you view your, your teaching philosophy now or kind of the mission of your teaching program? I think one of the things that, that I did as a chemistry TA that I still remember is we, we had to end the semester with nine graded quizzes. And I gave my students 14. Mm. And at first they hated it until they realized we get to drop five quizzes. And then I, I also made the quizzes pretty difficult. We worked on problems in class and on those quizzes that were much harder than anything they were going to see on the exams. Hmm. And they performed very well on the exams. So once once they saw how that was going to work, they bought in a lot more. Um, and I think they you know, some did better than others, but they all had the opportunity. Hmm. So that was something I've, I've kind of carried with me. Um, and, and it also showed me, and I still believe this, although I've gone away from it a time or two in my career, that examples are just really important. Hmm. In, in the writing class I teach, at first I hesitated to give 
examples because I didn't want the students just to copy what I was showing them or view that as a formula. But eventually I realized they just don't understand what you're asking them to do. Show them. And the quality of work just goes up tremendously. And I know I, I as a student, apologize, hit the mic there. I, as a student, um, very much appreciated having examples. And so that's something that I've, I've tried to use more and more in class. It seems obvious, but sometimes it just, it doesn't translate into your teaching as well as it should. Yeah, I can understand that. Specifically for writing, I think there's so much fear over, you know, plagiarism oh, that absolutely. we tend to not provide as many examples as we could, but it's very hard to identify, especially with technical writing, what a good quality sample of writing is if you've never seen oh. it. Absolutely. I was never asked to write um, a research paper without ever having seen one. Yes. And so I, I just have to think, you know, what what works for you? What do you appreciate? And, and really with the learning process, what is it that needs to happen to, to get those students where you want them to go? Mm, that's a great philosophy. So you mentioned that you had a little bit of experience with farming in, in your background and your family. One thing that we've been noticing is that fewer and fewer Americans do have that kind of background or that kind of access and exposure to agriculture. Have you seen this impact, you know, uh, enrollment in agriculture programs and has it impacted your recruiting efforts for these programs? Yeah, definitely. Even in Arkansas, um, which was a, a more rural state, although I think if you take the percentage of the population in Arkansas that lives in more urban areas, it's probably pretty similar to Illinois. Uh, but even there, we had fewer and fewer students coming from farm backgrounds. Uh, but in Illinois, it's it's so few. I mean, the the percent of the population that lives in Chicago and the suburbs, it's it may be half the state. It, it's a lot of people in that small area. And so the overwhelming majority of our students, I think it's 80 plus percent are from the Chicago area. Wow. So they don't have much of an agricultural background. They're they're most interested in companion animals, at least at first. Um, and so it does. You, you really have to consider that when you're thinking about not only recruiting, but how do you how do you work with those students as you onboard them into your department? Uh, you want to help them understand how many opportunities there are without scaring them to death about something they haven't yet been exposed to. Mm. But eventually we I've seen several students from Chicago and I mean actual Chicago, not the suburbs. Uh, pursue, eventually pursue PhDs in meat science. Wow. And if we would have told them that's what they were going to do, they would have run screaming in the other direction. They just would have never anticipated that. Mm -hmm. So it's a neat, for those students who are open to it, it's, it's so amazing to watch that process of discovery where they figure out, there's all these things I didn't know about. It's amazing. That is incredible. Talk about a success story. I mean, I think that was one of the, most satisfying things about my education experience was that I, I truly did not know where I was going to end up, right. but I can't think of anywhere else I'd rather be than the role that I'm in right now. Yeah, and right. I, I just wouldn't have gotten there without the mentors that looked at me. And I am one of those, you know, suburb of, of Minneapolis kids that yeah. didn't see a chicken yeah. except at the state fair. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, and there are a lot of students who are, who are pretty open to it. Some remain committed to, to a companion animal track and that's fine. Uh, you know, there's there's plenty of need all across the board. But for those students who are open to it, they begin to understand that maybe not everything they've been exposed to or heard about animal agriculture, which was not much, but even the things they have heard may not be accurate. Yes, there is a, a lot of misinformation out there, especially on social media. 
do you find that sometimes students, especially early on in their you know careers, might come to class with kind of an antagonistic attitude towards agriculture? Some do, definitely. Yeah, some do. Or, or they just come with overly simplistic solutions. You know, we should all just do this or just do that. And, and in the World Animal Resources class especially, we, we look at almost every topic and our conclusion is this is really complex. There's not a simple solution. If there were, it would have been done. Yes. So, yes. Things are more complicated than a short TikTok video can. Absolutely. That's right. That's right. I just used an example the other day in class. Uh, we were talking about extensive agriculture and intensive, you know, the, the larger, more intensive farms. Uh, well, I used the example in class. I was standing on a couple of uh, tiles, the floor tiles. I said, now, I, I like to pace around in class. I said, well, what would what would the impact be on these two tiles if I just stayed here, just moved around these tiles? It'd be quite a bit of impact on those two tiles. But what would the impact be on all the rest of the tiles? And they said, well, none. I said, okay, so we're seeing just a really overly simplistic illustration of we have to make decisions. Are we going to have try to raise more animals in, in more intensive farming situations where productivity is high and maybe the impact right on that piece of land is high or spread it way out and have potentially a lot of impact, maybe less impact, but over a much greater area? Hmm. And I mean, I don't I tell them I don't have answers to most of the questions I ask you. So it's, it's just complicated. It's complex. Yeah. But it's important for them to learn how to consider all of those complexities. It really is. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. So that seems like a, a challenge with this current generation. Are there any other challenges that you see that are different with the current generation of undergraduate students versus prior generations that you've taught? Yeah, I, I think a lot of people are seeing right now, and this this is probably in part a COVID thing and, and mm -hmm. it's part uh, a generational thing, but just engagement in the class. Um, or in, in college in general, I, I always felt like it would be important for me in my teaching to help students understand why the material I'm teaching is important. I didn't really anticipate the degree to which I would have to try to get them just invested in the idea of getting an education. Hmm. Um, and it's, it's intriguing to me why they come to college and yet seem reluctant to really engage in the educational process. Hmm. So I, I find myself having to motivate them much more broadly than what I used to have to do. Hmm. Have you seen? And, and again, I think part of that was the disconnect from from COVID, but there are probably other factors at work there. Have they given you any direct feedback on why that might be, or do they not? Are they not aware that they're being a little bit uh, complacent about? The yeah, I, I don't think they're aware because they they don't have great examples to compare to from the past. They only know you know what their experience That's is. A good point. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's challenging to help them see that. But the other thing we're recognizing, and, and uh, one of my colleagues and I just started teaching a study skills class this spring, just an eight week class, because oh, wow. they the students do not have study skills; they just don't. Um, high school has not prepared them for how to study, and it's our belief, and I, I think a lot of people would share this, that the students who are here deserve to be here. They're, they're smart enough to do what we're asking them to do, but they're not using the right tools. Hmm. So it's very much an approach of study smarter, not harder. Like you know, use some strategies that will really help you learn the material in a way that you could even teach it if you needed to. 
Uh, but I, I think with, with some of the study skills approach and the mindset that we talk about, I think that may help them with some of the engagement part. But we have to get to them early with that. That's true. It could be that they're a little bit overwhelmed in that they, they're not really sure how to tackle this massive problem that is college. <laughs> yeah. We know that in you know the first week you hit campus, you're worried about finding your classes, riding the bus, and all that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. it actually lasts a lot longer than the first week. Oh, yes. Uh, that can last deep into the first semester, into the second semester. So I think we used to throw a lot of resources at them the first week or two and then figure, oh, you're you're good to go now. Hmm. And it's not really that way. Yes. Yeah, it takes time. It's something that's easy to forget once you've been kind of entrenched in academia and you know where all the resources are and, you know, you know the bus schedule. <laughs> Well, that's good that you're kind of spreading out those resources so they can absorb it more slowly. I noticed that there's a course, Contemporary Issues uh, in Agriculture, Consumer, and Environmental Sciences, that's a mandatory course for incoming freshmen. Um, How does that differ from like your typical, you know, intro to ANSI uh, course to prepare those students? Yeah, well, this is important. Don't tell anyone, but that course really isn't about Contemporary Issues (laughs) and anymore. I inherited that course. And initially, and I I think for um, generations past, uh, exposing new students in the College of Agriculture, because it's across the board, it's animal science students, Mm -hmm. but it's crop sciences and food science, all the different departments that we have. Generations ago, exposing them to some of the most important issues in the field worked okay. As soon as they hit campus, Gave them a broad overview of agriculture, how our disciplines are related. Um, But now we've really turned that course into how to do college well. Hmm. And so what we're trying to do is share the resources that are here to help them, help them understand how to approach the college experience. That, yes, what you learn in the classroom is important, but all of the experiences outside the classroom are important Hmm. and networking and trying things and being okay with trying something and realizing I don't like that. Um, That's just a clue to go in a different direction. So it's, it's kind of a a course to help them with their overall college strategy, give them the resources, and then even make sure they know how to do things like convert a Google doc into a word file. Mm. Um, Their tech skills are really are terrible. Interesting. Um, they're great at using technology for social media. They are terrible at using technology to, to work, to do any kind of work, to solve problems, to find information even. Um, so, yeah, one of the assignments is convert this Google Doc into a Word file and submit it. <laughs> and, <laughs> well, and we have to spend skill. quite a bit of time on that. I mean, I've worked in some offices where that skill is not there, so I'm glad you're teaching them that. Yes. Yeah. And they and it's not their fault. They came out of schools yeah. that were entirely Google Classroom. Mm. So they, they don't even know what the office suite is or how to use any of those programs. Oh, I could see that being very tricky for something like Excel, especially in a science-based field. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's great that you're giving them the opportunity to kind of catch up on those skills so that everyone is on a level playing field. And now I think we're going to um, roll in the study skills portion into that class. Great. Um, so that hopefully they'll see kind of the parallel tracks. And we're trying to give you resources so that you um, are well while you're in school. So you can maintain your wellness. We're trying to help you explore so that you can find out what your what your direction is. We tell them you 
the goal is not to find the one place that you're meant to be in life, because for most of us, that's that's not the reality. Mm -hmm. The goal is to find a place where you could be successful and content and feel like you are living your best life. Mm -hmm. It's not that there may not, there may be many places that could do that for you, but we're trying to just help you find direction to a place that works for you. And then to be able to be successful while you're here. That's a good goal. What do you think is the most common pitfall that you see for new students? Yeah. The the biggest challenge in that course specifically is that just because of the nature of the timing, we're, we're providing them with information about resources they might not need at that mm-hmm. time. They might need two years from then or three years from then, especially when it comes to um, mental health, those kinds of resources. They Some need it initially, some don't, some never need it, some need it throughout. Uh, but for those students who are, are seeing some of the material and thinking, well, this I, I don't need this right now, it's difficult to get them engaged. Uh, so that, that's kind of an ongoing struggle. That is tricky. It's probably information overload at the start. Yes. And then later on when they need it, they may not remember. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And it's a little bit the same in, in all of the classes. In the animal handling class, if students are being asked to, to learn how to uh, move cattle around mm-hmm. and they don't envision ever working with cattle, that, well, why do I need to know this? Oh. It's hard for them to fully understand just how much Number one, just having confidence in your skills is important, but also there so many skills are transferable. So it's not that you're learning something that's completely useless in another setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's that's a challenge in every class, just getting them to understand beyond a fact, what is the value of the information you're learning. Mm-hmm. So the applied value of something. Absolutely. I have to say, learning how to show that little dairy heifer was probably my favorite thing in all of undergrad. <laughs> Absolutely. But. Absolutely. And one of the first things we have our students do is wing band a baby chick. Ah. And I mean, for some of them, the hands are shaking and they're, they're terrified. Yeah. Um, but rarely do we let a student in that lab without getting it done. Mm-hmm. And just the, to show them you can do it. You can overcome those nerves. You can do this. And if you can do this, what else can you do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, no, it's very valuable skills. I'm glad to hear that that's still something that's part of the curriculum in animal science. I think we've seen a downward trend in the use of live animals in teaching, and this is throughout, even through vet school. Um, I'm curious your opinion on, you know, do you think we'll still be teaching with live animals in 10 years? And what do we need to do now to ensure that that's the case? Yeah, I think one of one of our biggest challenges, I mean, I'm, I'm saying what everybody knows uh, in the poultry area specifically, it's just biosecurity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're like a lot of, I mean, I, I guess I call Champaign-Urbana a micro-urban area. We're like a lot of micro-urban areas and even urban areas now. We have geese everywhere. There are a pair just outside of the Animal Science Building. If I go out the south doors, I practically run into them. And so the biosecurity, that I think that before anything else might be what causes us to really pull back even more and working with live animals um, unless we're able to establish a facility where no research is done, where the, you know, the potential costs would not be as dramatic if, if we had an outbreak or something there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the biosecurity, that's our biggest struggle with the animal handling class. I can uh, see that. It, that. That's a tough one. I think most of our students, once they see what is happening at the farms, uh, they have a better understanding and they think, okay, I wasn't sure if I really agree with 
raising chickens for meat and eggs, but I see the care that goes into it. And I, I understand that a little bit better now. So I, I don't think we're quite to the point where we're pulling back because students can't handle it. It's just more, you know, like I said, the biosecurity part of it right now. It's, that's the scary part. Are there any measures or specific steps you have in place for biosecurity now around those classes? Definitely, yeah, for visitors to our farms. And it, it varies from farm to farm, but they have uh, dedicated coveralls, they have dedicated boots, um, thorough cleaning from lab to lab. We only have lab once a week, so they have a week to get everything cleaned. And, um, and then even just where they park, for most of the farms, they park right outside the facility. Um, at the poultry farm now, we're using additional plastic boot covers, um, and there are places where we don't allow students to go. And then we tell them, and you have to rely on them listening to this, but you know, once the weather gets nice, don't, don't go have lunch at a park around geese and then go to lab. Just, just don't do it. Uh, we, we just can't take that chance. And I say geese because that's the most common one that they're liable to come in contact with. We try to you know, watch, watch where you're walking and what you're doing. I mean, just as a way of educating about biosecurity, that's incredibly important in and of itself um, yeah, to raise public awareness, particularly as, as we see more people have backyard poultry flocks, even if they're not yes. intending to use their animal science degree to go into production, they that's may right. someday be a backyard chicken owner. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. The students ask me all the time, oh, do you have chickens at home? I'm like, I can't. I wish. <laughs> I, I would love to, but I, I can't do it. Same. If I somehow pick the only career where I can't have the animals I really want to have because of my career. I know. I know. Uh, Something for retirement. That's right. That's right. So if any of our uh, audience members are currently in uh, animal science or are considering a career in agriculture as a prospective undergraduate student, do you have any advice for them? Yeah, I think try as much uh, hands-on experience as you can. Get in a laboratory, do some research, and if you find out you hate research, that's okay because there are many other things that you can do. But learn if there's a particular animal that you think you might want to work with. Uh, learn as much as you can about that animal. That's one of the things I, I try to get across to students, especially in the writing class, is that it's it's easy to sit in the classroom and say, well, we should do this, that, and the other with a particular animal. But you have to know that animal. And I've been an animal scientist now for almost 30 years. And I feel like the only animal I know well enough to really make educated comments on about animal welfare is, is poultry. And even then, I'm not always confident I know the animal well enough to really share strong opinions about it. But for cattle and swine, I don't know the animals well enough. I know them pretty well, but... The, the people who work with them day in and day out, they understand the behavior and the needs of those animals. And so I think just encouraging students, encouraging people, get as much hands-on day-to-day experience as you can, because that's what really allows you to understand how that animal is similar to humans and how it is very often vastly different. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. That's they do not see or experience the world the same way we do. Yes. Exactly. Chickens have very different needs. <laughs> they do. They do. That's right. Yes. That's right. They have, uh, I'm not sure the things that keep us awake at night really bother them. So. No. 
There are some nice things about being a chicken. There are some not nice things about being a chicken as well, but they probably don't have a lot of worries going on in those little heads. No, no I don't think so. Yeah. That's great advice. How, how about some advice for parents of prospective students? Yeah, I think let your student explore all the different areas hmm. that, that they might be interested in because uh, we have quite a few students who stay on that vet track far beyond the time when they really want to be on. Hmm. And it's because oftentimes of either pressures or expectations from family or friends, because so often, you know, they've wanted to be a vet since they were five or six mm -hmm. years old. And it's hard to let that go. You feel like you're quitting something. And I tell them, you, you can't quit preparing to be a veterinarian. You're not in vet school yet. Mm -hmm. You're not quitting anything. You're finding something else that you're meant to do. It's great. Uh, but so often they say, well, this is really what my family wants to do. Uh, you know, they, and I think part of it is, you know, you can tell your friends that your child is a doctor and just all those kinds of things play into it as well. Mm -hmm. Now, I should be fair and say we see the flip side as well. Students who you can look at and say, you should be a veterinarian. This is, this is a perfect fit for you. And they're getting a lot of pressure because of the financial side not to mm -hmm. pursue that dream. And I, I know it's hard. I mean, our, our youngest child now is a freshman in college, and it can be hard to let them find their own way and what they want to do. But I think in the long run, that's that's the best way to allow them to to be successful in however they define that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, to, to be content, maybe I should say, phrase yes. it more like that. Yes, that's a good point on the funding side of things. That does really complicate matters, especially... You, know, you don't want to, when, when degree tracks are very rigid with the number and types of courses that must be taken, sometimes it can be hard to explore more. I know a lot of universities are shifting their mentality on programs to give students more flexibility in those options. Um, how is the funding outlook for students in ag as far as scholarships and funding? And then I think overall, it's, it's pretty good. Some areas, I, at least I'll speak to, to University of Illinois, I, to Arkansas a little bit too. Arkansas had uh, and I think still has a very, very good scholarship program for students who pursue poultry science. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think in animal sciences as well, but I, I know their poultry science support was very good from, from individuals and from the industry. Um, at, at Illinois, I would say it's not as high a percentage of scholarship support for students in animal sciences because it's just a much bigger program. Mm -hmm. um, but there, there are good scholarship opportunities for the students who want to spend the time to find them. That's the challenge. There are things out there that you have to apply. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot easier not to apply. <laughs> so that's, that's something that takes some work. Yes. Um, it takes and that's, I think, a place where parents can oftentimes be, be helpful, too, if they can help um, dig into that. Because I mentioned earlier, students are not great at using technology to find information. And parents may be much more savvy in, in that regard and be able to find some of those resources. But then please, 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 once you find those resources, turn it over to your student and let them do the applications. They, they just don't learn much when, when it's being done by someone else and they say, okay, sign here. That's it. And that's all. Yes. Eventually, they will have to be in charge of doing it for themselves. And it's easier to do it earlier. It is. It is. And I, and again, I, I can be guilty of, of the other way, and it's hard. <laughs> it's hard, but, you know, you have to be really conscious about making those decisions. Yes, absolutely. 
How about the job outlook in agriculture? Yeah, very good still. Um, oh, boy. I, when I was in the dean's office, um, I worked very closely with our career center. Uh, and, yeah, great outlook in um, in crop sciences and ag engineering, our ag business students, um, lots and lots of opportunities. We've got a wide variety of opportunities because mm -hmm. our, our ag business program covers consumer economics and finance and ag markets and marketing and international econ, just a lot of different areas, personal finance, um, food science. Oh, my goodness. It just yeah, tons. The food industry is still hiring like crazy. Um, and then in animal sciences, lots of opportunities. Now, it's going to vary depending on what students want to get into. Um, we have quite a few students want to get into shelter management, and there are opportunities there. Um, but they have to understand the financial realities of that decision. Mm -hmm. um, that school, we have a, a sizable number of students going that direction. But I would say we're still in the probably about 50 percent range of students going to graduate school. And wow. then with master's or Ph.D., that, that opens up additional doors. So, I mean, still, yeah, it's a, it's a great area to look into. I think anything under that STEM or STEAM umbrella, um, you know, anything science, technology, engineering, agriculture, math, all, all good ways to go. Yes. Should be reassuring for any parents uh, with students coming out of the pre-vet track that there is still a job at the end of the line. That's right. And probably right. a, a well-paying, good job that their student will enjoy. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. As uh, I always say, people always got to eat. So there should always be jobs in agriculture. Even though you'll you'll see videos out there of uh, interviews with people on the street who say, "Well, we should just end farming." Yes, that's the solution. That is that, that's uh, a bit naive. <laughs> yes, talk about oversimplification of a complex issue. Food has to come from somewhere. It takes a lot of work. <laughs> it does. Sure. It does. Um, do you see technology playing any new roles in the animal science curriculum? I know the industry is somewhat slowly moving forward with newer technologies. Um, yeah, we've we've done some recent faculty hires in areas that I can't even really explain. I mean, it's it's machine learning kinds of things. It's big data, um, and especially in the area of genetics, they mm -hmm. they just have to have this computational power because a, a person could spend the rest of their life looking at one data set mm -hmm. and not making any sense of it. Uh, so there's a lot of increasing um, application of technology. We have a couple people working now in the precision animal agriculture area, which I find just fascinating and exciting to be able to use visual and um, and audio kinds of technologies to be able to sense uh, if an animal is sick or not eating or just from the sounds that they make. Mm -hmm. Kind of goes back to when I said you have to really know the animal. You have to know the sounds that they make when they're when they're doing well and when they're not doing well. Mm -hmm. So all of that technology that can be applied, and I think we're even seeing it begin to to trickle into the veterinary world, um, certainly in agriculture, where all the data that can be gathered can be fed to a veterinarian, mm -hmm. um, but also in, with companion animals. I mean, so many people now have cameras and all that technology, even in their homes, um, that I, I think there's possibilities there to be able to provide information to a vet remotely that we never could before so mm -hmm. who knows these are just my crazy thoughts but i think um i think there's things in store that we haven't even dreamed of yet yes 
we collect a tremendous amount of data in you know production agriculture, veterinary science. Um, we just haven't really figured out what to do with all the data yet. So I'm glad to hear that someone's working on it. Yes, yeah, that's right. Now the challenge we're we're finding um, is that we're a little bit ahead of the curve as far as as you mentioned, you know, even companies recognizing the value of people trained in these areas. And when we try to look for a graduate student who's interested in kind of the more computational applications in animal sciences, we're, we're battling, they may be able to graduate with a degree in computer science and make 200,000 plus. And how you entice that person then to go to graduate school is uh, that's a challenge. Yes. So, how do you get that person to move to, you know, the Eastern shore to work with chickens as opposed to right. California to work with Google? Yeah. And I think the, the potential may be that uh, more and more of that work is remote and they can live where they want. Um, but yeah, that's, I think we're going to have to figure out how to, have to find the the supply of students that have those technical skills, but are also interested in, in the biological part of it. Um, and it, like a lot of things that we think aren't possible, it, I think it will be done. I'm just not sure how to do it yet. The value is there. It will take, I think, a few companies realizing the value of, of actually analyzing their huge data sets and getting some tangible benefits out of it to realize that it is worth paying that person a competitive salary to keep them out of the tech sector and in the ag sector. That's right. And it may be one of those areas where we have to um, hire and then pay for their continuing education. Mm -hmm. And that, that might be a potential solution. But, yeah. We'll get there. Are you uh, familiar with chat GPT? Yes. I, and I meant as soon as you asked that question a minute ago, that was going to be the first thing I talked about, but I thought, eh, Let's let's not make that the very first thing. I mean, if you're willing to talk about it, I would be curious to hear your opinion. I've spoken with a couple of professors just in friendly conversation about what do you think this is going to mean for teaching classes? We hear a lot about it's going to make it easier to cheat. It's going to make it easier to plagiarize. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I love it. I hate it and everything in between. Yes. And it depends. That can vary from minute to minute. Um. I've kind of come to the conclusion, and maybe this is because I'm getting older and further on in my career, uh, to not let this keep me awake at night mm -hmm. because it's here and it's not going to go away uh, no matter how much we might fight it. So I think our challenge is going to be what is the, the real uh, potential application for it? How do we help students understand where it's likely to be helpful and, and where it may lead them wrong? Mm -hmm. And the biggest concerns, you know, are that you rely on artificial intelligence for solutions that lead to people getting hurt, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, in engineering or in medicine or whatever. Um, that, that's not as big of a concern in, in my courses, but that's just one of the things I think about with that technology. So I haven't I haven't used it in the classroom yet, but I probably will, at least through examples. Yes. It may be the kind of thing, hey, let's explore what chat GPT will tell us about this topic. And then let's analyze the response. Let's see how, how it does. Uh, but a lot of the writing I ask my students to do is based on either their opinion hmm. or their research on a topic and a recommendation about that topic. Hmm. And those are areas where I'm not sure that artificial intelligence, but definitely your opinion, artificial intelligence can't give you your opinion. It can mm -hmm. give you an opinion, but not your opinion. Yes. 
Uh, and then as far as recommendations go, it's it may be able to do that, but I don't think it's always going to be spot on being able to be relevant to the topic and, and the assignments I'm using. So I'm not too worried about the cheating part of it yet. Um, if they're using it to help get started or to give them ideas, I'm, I'm okay with that because, I mean, they're using the web for that already. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, it's, it's hard to know exactly where it's going, how to police it, whether or not I should police it. Uh, and how the plagiarism part of it is is very difficult. Mm -hmm. um, they they certainly would need to cite it if they use it, but knowing exactly what resources the artificial intelligence is using, that's the yes, that's the kicker. It does not provide citations. No, it's, it's sometimes wrong information. The more detailed the question you ask, the higher the likelihood. I have noticed. Just plug yeah. in random nutrition questions. Yep. You know, it, it will be right most of the time, and then it will throw some fact in, factoid in there that right. is just completely incorrect. That's right. This is kind of out of left field yes. and not right at all. Yeah. I do appreciate right. that at the end of all the nutrition questions, it does say to consult a broiler nutritionist or a veterinarian. So think oh, uh, whoever programmed that to at least say, please don't do anything to your chickens without advice from a professional. Thank Very you. Good. <laughs> One of the things I, I talk to students about, too, is don't don't seed all of your thinking to your computer. I mean, you have value, you have a brain, you're able to solve problems, you're able to think um, and, you know, have confidence in what you can come up with. Um, it, it has value. And so I'm, I'm trying to at least get them to understand if you put in just a little bit of time and effort, you will grow in your communication skills and your writing skills. And that's a good thing because people need to hear what you think and what you believe and what your solution is. Um, we could all type a question into the computer, um, but we can't all, you know, understand what's in your brain unless you share it with us. And sometimes you're going to be right and sometimes you're going to be wrong. Uh, but it's all of those ideas kind of coming together that help us really solve problems. That's a good outlook. I think maybe really the only wrong way to approach this new technology is to not address it at all. I think in any way that you address it, especially having them pick apart some of the answers and realizing, oh, this thing is not infallible, it should be helpful. But very interesting times. It is. It <laughs> is. And I, uh, I don't know if I would want to be starting out again now or not. In some ways I would because there's so many tools that you can use. And in some ways, I think, oh, I just don't even know if I can keep up with the, with the changing pace. It's challenging. Well, it keeps things interesting. It does. That's right. That's right. So in addition to all of the teaching that you do, I know you also do some research. And in fact, you do some research on teaching. Um, I noticed that you had a, a publication about the impact of students' beliefs on their success in writing. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that? And how does that differ from what we usually think of when we think research? So the, uh, the main difference for me is that when I do any kind of social sciences research, I got to have a lot of help <laughs> on the statistics. It's a completely different kind of statistic. Oh, yeah. Um, but that's where it's so fun because we have our um, ag ed group and I can collaborate with them. And we have people who study uh, these things very intentionally. And it's, it's a lot of fun. I, I learn a lot when I'm doing that. Um, with that project, really looking at students' confidence in what they know, 
when they're writing about a topic, it's just very powerful. Um, and it, that's another one of those things that seems kind of obvious, but it just hasn't, a lot of these things that we think we know haven't really been studied in a methodical way, in a quantitative way. And that's, that's one of the things I enjoy. So just the impact of, of being very intentional about encouraging students and uh, helping them feel confident that they know what the resources are, that they can gather the background they need to form a solid argument, a solid thesis. Uh, it's, it's really powerful. And it's a lot of stuff that I used to skip in the classroom. Um, I we used to focus just on here's the, Here's the stuff I want you to know. Here's the content. Um, but the mindset I'm finding out is really just as important as the content. There's not very much that I teach them that they couldn't find somewhere on their own. Uh, sometimes how to use that information is, is pretty important. They may not know how to use it. Um, but it's it's their mindset going into it that is just so critical. Hmm. That's such important research. I mean, we have all these problems in teaching, right? About, you know, just different viewpoints and this complacency issue that we're seeing. And somebody has to research that. It can't all just be amino acid requirements. We have to figure out how to teach the next generation of poultry scientists. That's right. Because <laughs> the generations change, their challenges change, the the technology they have at their disposal changes, as mm -hmm. we've been talking about. So there's there's a lot of change built into it. Um, that we need to be mindful of. Well, I'm glad that you're applying your passion for teaching to researching teaching. Oh, that's great. That. It's fun. Yeah, yeah. I really do enjoy it. And you also do other applied applications in research. Uh, your program has been collaborating with ag engineering to develop technology that has hatchery applications. So you are just spread all the way across from very practical <laughs> poultry management to deep teaching philosophy. It's it's a lot of fun, and that project with ag engineering is one where I mean I know I really know nothing about the technology, mm -hmm. uh, but then my collaborator really knows nothing about poultry production, uh -huh. but he understands. We've we've had lots of conversations. He understands what the what the potential application could be, mm -hmm. and that's where it's that's where it's most enjoyable. And I really feel in my zone where I have. I have the comfort in knowing there's an expert in the area that I'm not familiar with, but I'm actually able to bring some value because yes, I can help uh, coordinate getting eggs together and fertile eggs and infertile eggs and incubation and all the parts of it that we need to do. So that's where, uh, that's where it's a lot of fun where everybody can bring their own piece to the table and, and hopefully find out something that has some application. Oh yeah. It's absolutely necessary to have those collaborations between the tech side and the, the practical side with poultry production. That's right. And some of the stuff we're working on, it's a little bit of a race. I mean, there's a lot of people working on these issues, which I think is great because then people are going to be pushed a little bit more and, and good solutions are going to be found. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about what specifically you're working on? So we're, we're trying to figure out how early in incubation um, this hyperspectral imaging technology can determine whether or not the egg is fertile mm. and if it can determine the sex of the embryo. Uh, Very important. If we, if we can get that done in the first couple days of incubation, then that addresses a lot of you know common animal welfare concerns about hatching males and 
not using those males in the egg industry. Absolutely. Or even maybe re being able to redirect those eggs into another purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, that's, that's a big part of it. And trying to, some of that technology is out there from what I can tell. Um, some of it relies on uh, feather color differences in the egg. And if we're dealing with the white feathered birds, that's, yeah, that's not going to work. So he's, he's using some other approaches that I don't understand at all, but they sound good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was we'll incredible to solve that problem. That's been a decades long problem. Um, not only having animal welfare impacts, but also just from a sustainability perspective, trying to utilize that hatchery capacity to its fullest without necessarily hatching out the males or unfertile eggs. That's right. Yeah. Yep. And there, you know, the biosecurity issues of having those, um, having the eggs that aren't fertile mm -hmm. in the incubator, especially if they don't, I think a lot of them now get caught at when they're transferred, but if they're not, uh, you know, that's yeah. just a you know, potential uh, problem. Yes. yes. That's very, very interesting. I hope that the project continues and you find a solution because I would love to see that out in the wild and industry in, in Absolutely. a couple of years. Yeah. And I think his technology would have application in the processing plan as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but I told him there are, you'd have much better collaborators in that area than, than myself. <laughs> Enough to be dangerous where I think this could work. But yeah, I, we, we can connect him with some other folks who can help with that. Yeah. Well, that's great. Um, before we wrap up and talk a little bit about resources, is there anything else that you'd like to tell us? Anything exciting uh, upcoming at University of Illinois? Uh, we are having uh, the Animal Sciences Department is hosting. Um, it's kind of an international agriculture uh, conference. I don't have the title right here with me, um, but that's coming up in April. It's an international. It, the, the topic is how to do agriculture well in developing countries, essentially, ah. especially in the tropics. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we'll have some speakers from here, but also uh, from many other places, parts of Africa. Um, I'm getting ready, hopefully, to um, to travel to uh, Southeast Africa in May and June and uh, get a chance to look at some things there. It's, it's a step, out, step or two outside of my comfort zone, but I'm yeah. really looking forward to it. Oh, it sounds very cool. So, yeah, the international piece, and, and just for anybody who's interested, uh, I, I just can't think of a more fascinating way to grow in what I know about agriculture and and, um, and and what I believe about agriculture than to see how it's done in other places and what their needs are. Yes. Um, and I'm going to learn. I'm not going to tell them anything. I'm going to learn how they do it and what their needs are. It just, should just be really interesting. It always brings an interesting change of perspective to see how the procedures that we do every day are carried out so differently across the world. I'm sure that will be an incredible trip. It's time for our famous three. The Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like DSM, helping customers with efficient, sustainable poultry production. AB Vista offers pioneering products and technical services tailored to the poultry industry to help them succeed. Adaseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. Your partner for improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt. JBI helps poultry producers fight against harmful pathogens with the foaming power of D7 disinfectant. 
JBI prevents costly outbreaks and assures eco-friendly biosecurity on-farm and in transport. Safe and effective against AI, E. coli, salmonella, cocci, dermatitis, and other illness-causing pathogens, D7 is non-toxic, providing a safer environment for you and your employees. Low corrosive to equipment and breaks down biofilms. Learn more at jbidistributors.com. Well, we typically end the podcast by asking all of our guests the same three questions. And these questions are related to resources that you would recommend. The first of which is, what's your favorite book or resource related to your field? And, and I'll let you interpret that however you want. Uh, nutrition, teaching, however you want to address it. Yeah, so uh, there's, I found, and this is a, a kind of a crazy example, I guess, but there's um, there's a behavior book. Um, by an author, uh, I think his first name's Edward, but the last name is Price. I had to cover uh, an animal behavior class for one of our faculty who was on sabbatical a couple of semesters ago, and I'm not a behavior specialist by any means, so I relied heavy, heavily on this textbook, um, and it's out of reach right now, <laughs> or I would, I would show you what it is, but that that behavior textbook was just so fascinating to me. I think for anybody who's not in the behavioral sciences. If you're in the behavioral sciences, you have far more advanced uh, uh, resources, I'm sure. But I found that one so fascinating. And right now um, I'm reading another book just about the animal senses and how animals perceive the world. Mm. And that's a fascinating read too. So I'm not far enough into it to, to give it much of a thorough review, but I would just say that whole area, I think of, of behavior is fascinating to me because it's not my specialty. But because I feel like it really does impact every other discipline. I mean, mm -hmm. certainly animal welfare, but behavior affects nutrition and it affects reproduction. And there's just all the areas that it's it's so important. So sure. that's what I just mentioned that because that's what has kind of given me a spark over the last year or two. This mm -hmm. made me think differently even about some of what I'm teaching and how I'm doing that. So, yeah, that's been kind of fun. What a great recommendation. Something that's both fun to read and very informative. I'll have to check that out. Um, how about something outside of your field? And this could be anything, book, podcast, website, something that you've found and said, oh, wow, this is great. Yeah, I really like uh, Mike Rowe has a podcast uh, <laughs> um, because he gets into, you know, the it's dirty jobs kind of stuff. But he interviews people who do things that we just don't encounter in our daily lives. So I really enjoy that one. That one's fun. Uh, for a fun one, I listen to the Office Ladies podcast, <laughs> the show The Office. I really like yeah. that one. Um, so those are things. And then in uh, in books, I I like read. I really like classic literature. Tale of Two Cities is one of my favorite books. Um, I never was able to completely pass that on to my children. <laughs> I think the the younger generations are are reading a much broader you know set of books than what I ever did, but. I still like the classics. I really enjoy those. Yes, I agree. I think for anyone who may have had a bad experience with the classics because they were forced to read them in middle, high school, undergrad, maybe, you know, it's well worth revisiting as an adult. There's a reason they're the classics. <laughs> yeah. And it makes my writing better. When I'm challenging myself with any book that uses vocabulary that I don't use on a daily basis, it just, it stretches me. And mm -hmm. I find it, it does elevate my writing a little bit. What a great observation. Very good recommendations. Thank you. 
Um, our last question is somewhat more philosophical. And I'd like to ask you to think of what makes a successful person. And if you could tell us a little bit about your opinion on what are the characteristics of a successful person. Yeah, so I, this, this would be a vastly different answer if you asked me 10 years ago and 20 and 30 and so on and so on. Um, so I, I think for me, when I hear um, success in my mind now, the, the other words I think of are content and significant. Um, I heard someone this many years ago ask the question, would you rather be successful or significant? And I think you can be both, but I think their point was, do you want to do something that you feel like makes a difference? Or do you want to pursue the more classic um, idea of success as far as, you know, you're making a lot of money or positions or power or whatever that is. Um, And I think for me, the significance is just really important. And I've had to learn that that significance can happen on a really small scale or it can happen on a very big scale. I know people who are very significant in a very large scale. Lots of there, lots of people are exposed to their thoughts and ideas and it makes an impact on people's lives. And that's fantastic. But we can all do that, at, at least on a small scale. And for me, that's kind of why I've gravitated toward teaching in my career and a little bit less on research. I like research, but I'm passionate about teaching. And I thought the kind of passion that leads you to really make a difference is probably going to manifest in my career more through teaching than it is through research. And so I think for people that to be successful or to have that contentment or that opportunity to be significant, you have to find something that you do feel strongly about and then take the time to learn what you can about that area. And you know, don't be afraid of changing directions when that's something that's needed. Um, I know I, I switched jobs pretty dramatically from professor to the assistant dean position doing recruiting and scholarships. And I did not use any of the facts that I knew about poultry nutrition, but I used all of the skills that I had gained. And so when you make that kind of pivot, be confident that you're going to take a lot of skills with you. Um, and, and that hopefully will allow you to feel like you're being successful, whatever that means for you. It's a very thoughtful answer. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, no problem. Kind of rambling and all over the board. No, not at all. That's me, for sure. It's definitely an answer that you have to develop over years and years and years. It means something very different to different people. Well, great. Thank you so much for joining us on the Poultry Podcast Show. We really appreciated you sharing your experience and your insights with us today. I hope you have a great rest of the semester and beyond. Well, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. I've enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. Have a great rest of your week. <laughs>